This sermon, Cornelius the Centurion is Saved, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, May 8, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, what a privilege it is for me to read and preach God's Word this morning. If you would stand with me, you'll want your Bible in hand. I believe they're going to be driving a lot of this on the screen as well to serve you. We'll find out. Well, in God's providence and on Mother's Day, we have landed on Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. We have 48 verses we're going to read together. Now, if your mom and dad gathered you at the table and said, all right, kids, we're going to read 48 verses. Are you ready? Um, maybe some of you privately are starting to look for your phone. Don't do that. But we find in the verses today is an amazing story. Let's read together God's word delivered to you and I today. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian court, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending down, a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything, you've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision, vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent to Cornelius, sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, 
I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation is directed by our holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered, and, they said to the, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying on my rooftop about the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the anointed one by God, to be the judge of living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from the among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. 
Let's pray together. You may be seated. Lord, your word declares anyone who believes in Christ will be forgiven of their sins and be saved. Anyone. Help us believe your word. Holy Spirit, we need your presence just like we've read in the text for you to be present to mediate Jesus Christ present with us. Jesus, be exalted as your name is proclaimed in your word. Speak to us through your word. Grant us illumination. Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ all the more through the word, our need for him all the more, and long for him to return soon. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus, Jesus, in your name is all salvation. And we pray, amen, amen. In January 49 B.C., Julius Caesar led a single legion, number number 13. And he led this legion south over the Rubicon. I'm reading this out of Wikipedia if you want to know where it comes from. He led them south over the Rubicon River from the Sialspime Gual to Italy to make his way to Rome. And in doing so, he deliberately broke the law of the Imperium. That's the whole nation and territory that Rome had overtaken. And he made an armed conflict inevitable. Roman historian Suetonus depicts Caesar as undecided as he approached this river. And he attributes the crossing to a supernatural apparition. It was reported that Caesar dined with Salus, Hirtius, Opius, Lucius, Balbus, and Sulpicius, Rufus. God, I love names like John and Bill and Joe, don't you? And on the night he met with them after the famous crossing into Italy, on the 10th of January, according to, according to the historian, Caesar uttered these famous, this famous phrase, Alea, it's Latin, bear with me. We had French a couple of weeks ago, now you get Latin today. Alea iacta est, the die has been cast. Phrase also, crossing the Rubicon, has survived to this day to refer to any individual or group committing itself to irrevocably to a risky or revolutionary course of action, similar to the modern phrase, passing the point of no return. Derek Thomas, Christian pastor and writer, in his commentary on Acts 10, makes this statement regarding what has unfolded in Acts chapter 10. Mark this chapter in the book of Acts book of Acts. 
A Rubicon has been crossed, and there is no going back. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus goes where no Jew would go. We hear that recounted in the at-length message of the gospel that, preacher, that the preacher preaches. Time and time again, Jesus would break through social barriers. He went to the outcasts. He went to the prostitutes. He went to tax collectors. IRS had a different reputation back then. He goes to the demon-possessed. He touches lepers. And into Samaria, he speaks to an adulterer. He advanced the kingdom of God into the hearts of men and women, no matter who they were or where they were from or what they had done. And so far in Luke, the gospel relentlessly advances to the ends of the earth. We know that as he goes, and Derek so helpfully helped us see that going to the eunuch, essentially from Africa, in their mind, that's the edge of the earth. And we are witnessing a massive advance of gospel and redemptive history in this chapter. This is a very, very popular story. It's heard throughout all of Christendom. Almost all of you have heard this one way or another. Particularly those of you that like pork. You love this text. In obedience to the command of the Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's I'm telling you all this ahead of time. The Apostle Peter crosses a Rubicon. Jews and Gentiles alike will be saved and from this time on brought together into the church and there will be no going back. So Luke slows the narrative down. Hence why we read 48 verses. He slows the narrative down to provide detail on a major shift in gospel advance. He slows it down for two chapters. So what I've done is I've broken this into essentially scenes or sections of the text. The first one at Caesarea, day one. If you're taking notes, this will be kind of a helpful marker for you. God prepares the Gentile for the gospel. God prepares the sinner for the gospel. Cornelius was a centurion. He led about 100 men within a legion of the Roman army. It's fascinating to study it a little bit. But he also was a God-fearer who worshipped the monotheistic God of Israel in the midst of the polytheistic, monogistic meaning, monotheistic, excuse me, meaning one God. He's in the midst of a polytheistic people, many gods, innumerable gods, and they just keep popping up. They worship various Greek gods, Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus, and the list goes on and on. And maybe you worshiped more than just adopt one. He he was respected by the Jews because he chose their faith. He's also respected by the Jews for his piety, as the scriptures described him, and for his almsgiving. Yet, He was a lost man. He was religious, for sure. But he was an unsaved man, for certain. But not for long. Cornelius needed a savior. All of his 
vigors and religious activity. It could gain favor among the Jews, and it had, but this did not make him a Jew. And all his sacrifice and alms, it did make a memorial to God, but it did not save him. He needed Jesus. Ephesians 2 helps us understand the position of Cornelius in particular being a Gentile. Hear the word out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, a Gentile church, Greek church. Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Cornelius, however close he was, was light years from being in. He stood outside. On the other side is a better way to say it. And on the other side of the great wall of separation. But something amazes, amazingly happens, amazing happens in Acts chapter 10. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. In fact, when he retells it a little bit later, he tells his story again in verse 30. He just, he didn't even say it's a vision. He just said, a guy in bright clothing appeared to me. And a voice came, this angel says, Cornelius. And we cannot miss the richness of God's grace in this angelic voice saying Cornelius' name. Look at the text with me, if you would. Remember his condition before God. Well, he was remembered by God, but he is far from him. And he hears, and what we're going to discover and already know in a salvation moment for him, the Lord calls his name. See, what's interesting about what is said about him in this text and elsewhere is it may trip us up, and we may be concerned that, oh, he was a pious guy, and he gave a lot to the church, and that got the Lord's attention. But it's clear two times in the text, two times, it says nothing about him being saved by what he had done. It says the Lord remembered him, remembered him. And I would venture to say, I think what we're finding in the text is it's very clear to Cornelius, God knows everything about him. He knows him personally. I've heard your prayers. I've seen the gifts that you've given. Usually those gifts went to poor people, and I'm sure that meant a lot to the Lord. But he's not saying, so now, heaven, after what you've done, he's saying, no, Cornelius, I know you, and now I'm calling I know you. I know everything about you. When I read this, I immediately thought of the scene in the garden. It's different, but it had the same feel to me. Following Adam's horrific and cosmic sin against his loving creator, if you do this, Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But Genesis 8, 3, 8 through 9, Genesis 3, 8 through 9, says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord, and this is following their sin, 
the very next scene is to hear a sign and to hear a sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You know what the scene should have been in Genesis? It should have been, and they heard the sound of the Lord as fire poured into the garden and consumed them according to his word. You will surely die. And yet the birds continue to chirp in the garden, and a cool breeze blows across the face of the ground. And the Lord comes to Adam in grace. So he will die. He will not live forever. He will die but not yet. The Lord's mercy is on the scene. And here we hear Cornelius being called by God. The Lord gives him a vision of an angel with the encouragement that he knows who he is and he calls him by name. Here we have a pagan Gentile. Here what will be the beginning of his unstoppable salvation. God is on a gracious move in this sinner's life. Cornelius, though he was far off, is now being brought near. We know from the scriptures that God is always at work in preparing the sinner for his conversion. Is that not the case with you and I? You and me, we have the same story that we tell. The Lord placed us here. The Lord sent this person. I was at this location. We all recount the events that led up to the moment that we believed in Christ. And we see that it was God's hand at work. We see the hand of God in every one of them. But what we're witnessing in these verses is the salvation of a man and beyond. In these details, that it is going to be spectacular and terrifying. We know that from what he says. Cornelius, and he's terrified, as a divine messenger, is both saving the sinner He's announcing the salvation of this sinner and his family and his close friends and is marking the unfolding of an explosive change that is coming. Redemptive history now swings again on a massive hinge of the gospel. And Cornelius responds. The text has the sense that he, as soon as the angel disappears, he immediately turns and obeys what the Lord has done. He has been saved. He is being saved, and he responds in that call. These Gentile sinners have been prepared for the good news, and history is shifting into what's coming, but God will first do something else that is desperately needed. Day two, God prepares the evangelist by the gospel. God prepares Peter by the gospel. As if the apostles didn't finally get it all from Jesus and now that Jesus has ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit is now poured out on them, they're good to go. We discover in this text they're not always good to go. But you know one of the good things about this text, what it's done for me, is often when I've read about the disciples or the apostles, I've had a diminished view these bunch of knuckleheads. Well, because I related to them. I, I feel like I'm the goofball. 
in the scene. But what's amazing about this, this is one of the 12 apostles. One day it's going to be on a throne in heaven, leading all that are in heaven. This apostle must be prepared. Peter has to be personally changed. The scene shifts 30 miles away, back over in Joppa on the seashore. And in verse 9, while Cornelius' men are on the way to the house where Peter is staying, God gives Peter a vision and a command. He's hungry. I love what one of the commentators said, hence likely why the vision started with food. I thought that was super helpful. (laughs) He is just a man, but something radically connected to food is coming in this vision. A sheet with four corners, effectively referring to every corner of the earth, east, west, north, and south. All kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds in the air. Being let down by its four corners. And by the way, these categories of animals include the same categories of animals in Genesis 6, representing all of the animal kingdom other than men. It's cattle, creeping things, and birds. Cattle, creeping things, and birds. The Old Testament lays out the dietary laws um, that precede this occurrence. That there were some living things that they were able to eat after they were specially prepared. And then there were some that they were forbidden to ever even touch or eat. And now they're intermingled and slithering around together in the sheet, the clean and the the unclean together in the sheet. You know what's also fascinating about this text? And there came a voice to him, and in your red letter, (laughs) that's dangerous sometimes, but in your red letter it says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is the voice of Jesus. Commentators make note of this, and this is why the ESV that I have probably is why it's read, is because it seems to be a familiar voice that's come to Peter. In fact, it's a calling of Peter, referring to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat, sounds really familiar to other times Jesus spoke to him. And he responds immediately, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Jesus speaking to Peter, Peter saying, no, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to die for you. Jesus has to argue back with Peter. And again, we have this, but there's a reason for Peter's rejection of Jesus' call to him to rise and to kill these animals and eat. By no means is a repulsive response. Those words, by no means, is an immediate rejection of the Lord's command. And he puts it, because I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, what God has made clean, do not call common. And sounding very familiar again, like the lakeshore encounter with Christ, Jesus repeats it three times for him. Rise, kill, and eat. Rejection. What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. So far, we're talking about food. 
talking about animals. Peter's first response is repulsion. In Peter's eyes, the sheet contained things that he personally grew up believing and practicing, but also felt and smelled. He's disgusted and repulsed by what he visually sees and knows about what's in the sheet. The closest thing I could personally come up with in identifying with Peter in in regards to repulsion was not broccoli or Brussels sprouts boiled. For me, it would be like the China wet market, full of vile, grotesque animals, creeping things, and birds. It's called the wet market because they take buckets of water and pour it over these filthy animals to keep them cool in the heat of the day. And Peter saw what, was, what Peter saw brought an immediate gut reaction, but included with it also the law he grew up, a, a sense, a soul reaction, a gut reaction, but also a soul reaction, understanding that he would have been disobeying. These things were unclean, and that he uh, not only be nauseated by everything that he saw, in but it was intermingled and writhing on the sheet with things that would have been clean and okay for him to eat, but now in contact with these other animals, now deemed unclean by no means, Lord, is his response. Here's where you and I have to examine our hearts with the text. By no means, Lord. If we look at the text down at verse 28, we get an interpretation of what Peter learned. He didn't say, so what the Lord taught me is, I now can eat whatever I want to eat, so I can eat with you Gentiles. That's cool. No, he actually does something radically different, and I was surprised by it in the text. God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. Now, wait a minute. This was about food. Whatever I've called uncommon or unclean, that was about food. Well, to the Jew, they were inseparable. Eating those items of food meant you were with those people. The Lord originally forbade it. You did not go around a Gentile or you became unclean. You did not fellowship with Gentiles. They were not your neighbors in close proximity. You kept them way further than arms reach away. And the food laws and restrictions were directly connected to the people God said were unclean and made detestable. And so Kent Hughes, he comments writing this. As we consider our gut reaction to what's occurring, we write off whole churches simply by what we have heard about them. We shut out whole ethnic groups of people because of a bad experience with that one person or family. We mentally excommunicate those who do not agree with us on a secondary issue or another. Our sheets easily fill with educational, racial, cultural, and spiritual rejects, and we cry by no means, Lord, they are not my type. So who is on your sheet. I wanted to read something that's included in Kent Hughes. Alexander 
White writes this. It would change your whole heart and life if this very night you would take Peter and Cornelius home with you and lay them both to heart. And if you would take a four-cornered napkin when you go home and on Sunday night, pen and ink, and write the names of the nations and churches and the denominations and the congregations and the ministers and the public men and the private citizens and the neighbors and the fellow worshipers, all the people you dislike and despise and do not and cannot and will not love. Heap all their names onto your unclean napkin and then look up and say, not so, Lord. I neither can speak, speak well, nor wealth will think, nor think well, nor hope well of these people. I cannot do it, and I will not try. You and I have to examine ourselves on how we feel about certain people Who has become repulsive to you? Being in Cross of Grace in El Paso, essentially from high school on, I've had the joy of knowing long-term members in the church. And I knew very well one older committed woman in our church for years. And she often would voice when I was around her concern for the worldly young women in appearance, who were attending years ago. They had their funky haircuts and tattoos and judgments of immodesty, too much makeup, and so on. I remember one comment, none of the women wear hose anymore. (laughs) And all of us older folks in the church are like, oh yeah, I remember that. She spoke of her lost neighbors in similar fashion, the Catholic one, the foul mouth one also not too far away and rarely ever spoke to them personally, spoke about them, but never spoke to them. But during a series that our pastor Ricky led our church through years ago called Our Pagan Gospel, I personally witnessed the word of God take hold of this saint, and a paradigm shift began to change her heart. She took gospel interest in one of the young ladies she would have normally avoided. And in a Titus II way, invited her to sit with her on Sunday. And during the season when, the, and she did this during the season when the young wife's husband was on deployment. No more complaints of worldliness from this elder saint. She took gospel interest in her neighbors as well and began to talk to them and encourage them. In fact, when she talked to me about those encounters, particularly the first one, she led with those neighbors, I'm sorry that for years I never even spoke to you. Please forgive me. Allow God's spirit to change you even now. Mothers, there's also hope for you if you have wayward children that are out and about. This work of undoing a sinner's heart that's in the church, this work of preparing the evangelist, preparing the apostle, should be hopeful to you. Because there's evangelists that may get to your son or your daughter that have nothing to do with Christ right now. Have hope that the gospel is advancing in ways that you cannot simply 
understand. There is hope for your children beyond the doors of your home because the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. Moms, have hope for your lost ones. The Lord is preparing his evangelist, his apostle, Peter. He had to be changed by an act of God. So the Lord speaks in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. There's a phrase, made clean, that's the same phrase that a priest would declare over an unclean person or over an unclean object. We know it when Jesus speaks it to the leper. The leper says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, using the priestly term, he says, I will be clean. In a similar fashion to Jesus' lakeshore restoration of Peter, the Lord does this for Peter three times that we heard. And Ephesians 2.14 describes like this, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's how we got to where we were. That's how we could have actually names we could write on our four-cornered napkin is there was a dividing wall of hostility that Christ has now broken down and he's done so by his flesh. By abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, making, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, both the Jew and the Gentile, now one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, killing hostility. And he came and preached Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I don't know what the genealogy is of the folks in this room, but I'll bet we all fall in as Gentiles. If not, our genes will show that they're probably in our bloodline somewhere. Is that not the case? We're here because of chapter 10 in Acts. You and I are here because he does prepare the sinner for the gospel. But he's, we're here because he prepares the evangelist for the gospel and by the gospel. What makes a man unclean in the first place? You're wondering, what made him clean in the first place? Mark 7 says what comes out of a man, out of his heart. And what he's instructing is, it's not what you eat and what you drink or who you hang out with. That's not what makes you unclean. Sin makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. So what makes a man clean in the first place? Derek and I met and talked about this. So helpful, bro. What makes a man clean in the first place? God calls a man clean. Jesus, the blood of Christ, makes a man clean. He goes to the leper that we've heard. Before Christ... We were unclean, but now we are in a priestly, true sense, the great high priest sense, made clean. And this should shock us when we understand how repulsive we were to the Lord in the first place. A minute ago, we talked about how reviling it was to us, how repulsive certain people are to us. 
how certain things are grotesque to us. Can you imagine what sinners must be in the nostrils and in the eyes in the sight of God as he looks down on sinful humanity? Every one of us shaking our fist at him. We're not neutral on the matter and disgusting. We're disgusting to him, we're putrid to him, and we're in his face rebelling against him. And yet, when God who is holy looks down on the four corners of the earth, on our sinfulness. It's indescribable filth. It is justified, abject, divine repulsion. And yet, he set his affection and love on what was repulsive. He set his affection and love on sinners like me and made me clean. Peter, maybe well, do you think Peter obeys? Do you think Peter's changed? You know, if you go back in the early parts of the gospel, he's not. He says, I'll die with you, Lord. And Jesus says, you won't. And the sense of the text is, Peter probably left thinking, yeah, I will. And he didn't. But here is a new Peter. He is changed. And he does obey. You know what's interesting about this region of Joppa and Caesarea? It's the same reason that Nineveh is. And Jonah is commanded by the Lord to go and to preach their need to repent. And Jonah will not go. Peter's now called to go to the same area. Preach to just his reviling people as Jonah was. Something radically has occurred in the gospel for this man. He goes. He obeys. We know that in verse 23, which I would describe as probably one of the hinge moments. There's multiple hinges. So this door's got lots of hinges. Here, verse 23. So Peter invited them in to be his guest. Alea Yakta est. The die has been cast. It's here in the text. Once this river's crossed, once this Rubicon is crossed, there's no turning back. He invites them in. Day three, the evangelist was prepared by the gospel. Now day three, this whole section to the end, anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Anyone. The Gentiles in verses 28 through 29, they hear explosive good news personally. And the church hears explosive good news universally. So the Gentiles, they hear it personally. And yet the church hears it universally. God shows no partiality to the nations. The cross of Jesus has leveled the playing field. Without exception, all have sinned and all need a Savior. And Jesus is calling all men everywhere without distinction to repent and be saved. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. It's what we'll discover. 
God has prepared Cornelius to hear the good news. God has prepared Peter to preach the good news. And so Cornelius gathered his family and close friends. I'll bet you the place smelled like bacon. I just had to throw that in because that's what it would be like at my house. Brett wraps many of his yummy delights at their house in bacon. We are all here, Cornelius says. We are all here in the presence of God to hear Peter preached Christ and him crucified. Of all the things that Peter could have done for this reviling kind of people, why did he not start with what we hear in Romans 1? You all know that God exists, but because you've rejected him, God has given you over to this filth. He's given you over to the evil desires of your heart. Why not that message for this people? He gives them Christ. Peter knows the darkness of their hearts because he knows his own darkness. He's been saved by Christ and changed by Christ. They need Jesus. Jesus' life, his death by crucifixion, his bodily resurrection, and all witnessed by his disciples, his heavenly rule and dominion, it's all there in the gospel presentation in 34 and following. These Gentiles need to hear it all. And just like the Jews need to hear it all, and just like you and me, we need to hear it all. In verses 44 through 48, I love the way the text changes Let's start in verse 43, and then we're going to read through the end together to get this narrative beating again. As he nears the end of his gospel presentation, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins through his name, while Peter is still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So it's amazing. The gospel is being declared, and men, while it's being breathed out, the Spirit of God is being breathed on them, and they're being saved. One by one in the gathering are falling out, being filled. Sorry, falling out is just an old charismatic term of mine. They're all being filled with the Spirit of the Lord while he is still saying these things. What an amazing, sovereign act of God. It wasn't like one, two, three, and now you're in. Pray this prayer at the end. It's like one, two, and while he's breathing out three, they're filled with the Spirit. There is a sense of while all of this is going on, the Spirit falls on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, in other words, among the Jews who had come with Peter, they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues, And extolling God, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Gentiles are saved. And the sense of the text that we've just read through of all of it is Gentiles, shockingly, are saved amazingly 
I say the Jewish Christians are amazed because they witnessed that while Peter could barely get it all out, the Spirit fell on them. And the Holy Spirit grants them even the gift of tongues as evidence in this case. Let's use our sanctified imaginations just for a minute and consider the scene. I can imagine God the Father and his risen Son leaning in with the Holy Spirit on the scene personally. The Trinity initiating it all and initiating it all before time began. And a great cloud of witnesses standing and cheering. And the angels rejoicing. It's not just one sinner repents, but a whole crowd repents. His wife, his son, aunts, uncles, granddad, nana, the jailbird cousin, the insurrectionist cousin, the prostituted sister, the drunkard friend, his homosexual brother, the zealous religious brother, the special needs niece, great grandma recently widowed, all of them who believed were forgiven of their sins through the name of Jesus. The sobbing and the laughing and the singing. Can you imagine what it must have sounded like? Rick, you can come forward. You can lead us to sing. A Rubicon had been crossed and there was no going back. Kent Hughes writes this story. Dr. H.A. Ironside said that when his father died, this passage was running through his father's mind. And he kept repeating, a great sheet and wild beasts and, 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 and when he could not get the words out, he started over, but stalled once more at the same place. And finally, a friend bent over and whispered, John, it says, creeping things. He says, oh, yes. That's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in. You know, without a change in apostolic attitudes, none of us would have heard the gospel of love of Jesus Christ.